0: All right, Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of this, the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive now. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found.
1: You know, one of the great lies that our world likes to tell is that we don't judge people. We just accept everyone the way they are. I remember one of my first conversations with my brother-in-law. We get on fabulously. His name is Chris. And he said to me, Greg, the thing I don't like about you Christians is you're all so judgmental which is slightly ironic if you give it more than a moment's thought, him not liking us for being judgmental. He said, me, look, I don't judge anyone. I just take people as they are, live and let live. Which is total rubbish. Not just with him, but with our entire culture. When you look closely at our culture, we're always making people feel guilty for just about everything, aren't we? The environment. Do you ever get the feeling that maybe you are responsible for global warming and the melting of the ice caps and the hole in the ozone layer and the depletion of the oceans and the disappearance of the Amazon all by yourself because you don't recycle enough. Because, you see, the environment is this massive source of guilt for us, isn't it? And, in fact, it's something that people get incredibly judgmental about. Imagine you're sitting in the Brennan room having lunch with some friends and you screw up your, your piece of paper and you throw it into the non-recycling bin, and you go, look, you know, the whole this whole recycling thing, I just can't get into it. It's not my thing. I mean, you look, I know it's good for the planet and everything, but I just like to shot everything into the big red bin and let it all go into landfill. You know, it's just easier. And this whole composting thing, it's just too much work. Can you imagine the silence? Among your, imagine the shock, the outrage, the condemnation. You might as well just say, I like to kill puppies in my spare time and be done with it. Because it's just one of the areas that our culture is really judgmental about. We're made to feel guilty all the time. We feel guilty if our coffee is not fair trade. We feel guilty about where our sneakers get made. We feel guilty about being middle class. We feel guilty about our nation's past. I realize I actually sound like Dr. Zeus with those lines. They're all, they're all rhyming. We feel guilty everywhere we turn in our culture, someone is telling us something new to feel guilty about. And in fact, everywhere you turn, someone is being punished. I don't know if you noticed it, but have you noticed that within our culture, every time someone makes a mistake they have to be punished for it. So the trains run late. You can guarantee on the radio, someone will demand the minister's head for this. A product gets recalled and the journalists will always ask the CEO, are you going to resign over this? Or someone makes some kind of public comment that people disagree with and everyone demands a public apology. Facebook's where you see it best though, isn't it? I don't really spend much time on Facebook anymore simply because of the way people treat each other. The brutality of people's comments. So someone will say something just a a little bit challenging and then in the comments below you just get this bonfire of hatred. People saying the most extraordinary things because really when you think about it, we don't have to look the person in the eye. So even though we think that our culture is very tolerant, it's actually really judgmental and harsh, and punishing, and unforgiving. And you know what that means? What it means is that we all tend to hide our true selves. At at work, at uni, in relationships, on Facebook, we don't say what we really think, and we don't let the real us out, because it's just not safe. We hide our faults because we know that all too often people are going to judge us for the things we've done wrong. But you know who's different? God. The one person everyone thinks is harsh and angry and judgmental and disapproving. But in this series, we're going to see just how different God is. We're going to spend five weeks Looking at just one story that Jesus told, the the parable of the prodigal son. I think another way of describing it better, another title for it might be the parable of the gracious father. Or the parable of two lost sons might be another way of looking at it. But I'm convinced if we really get God from this story, it's going to totally change the way you relate to God. And it's going to really change the way we relate to each other. Let's have a wander through it. Have hope you got it open. Luke 15, the really key bit to understanding this, this story is actually looking at who's come to listen to Jesus. Have a look in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. See, there are two kinds of people listening to Jesus. And half of them are the kind of people you would never expect to turn up to church on a Sunday night. The tax collectors and the sinners. Now, if you've been hanging around church for a little while, you probably know a little bit about the tax collectors. Here's who they were. The tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman conquerors. So Israel had been conquered by the Romans, and the Romans wanted to collect tax. The way they did it was they hired locals, Jews, to collect it from their countrymen, which basically meant that the tax collectors were traitors. But worse than that, they were crooks as well, because you see, back then they didn't have the tax rate, the standard tax rates like we have, you know, 20%, 40%, all that sort of stuff. Now, basically, what the tax collector did was he screwed out of everyone as much money as he could, and he got to keep a chunk of it. Which means that the tax collectors were ruthless, greedy, hated people. And here they are, listening to Jesus. And right next to them is another sort of person, the kind of person you do see at church. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, again, if you've been hanging around church for a little while, you probably think you know a lot about the Pharisees. But my guess is you've got them wrong. See, we usually see the Pharisees as villains because Jesus criticizes them. But they weren't. The Pharisees were good people. Everyone looked up to the Pharisees because in a culture that by and large treated God just like as a part-time hobby, they were really serious about God. They were really serious about his word and his laws. So they didn't just obey God's Old Testament laws. They also created a whole bunch of other laws to help them obey God's laws. So God's law said that you couldn't work on a Saturday. They created another 50 laws on top of that to help them to make sure they obeyed God's law. So they had laws about how far you could walk on a Saturday before it became work, how much you could lift on a Saturday before it became work. See, the Pharisees, they really cared about God's word. They were the good people. They were the people that our culture gives an OBE to or makes Australian of the year. They were like Adam Goods. They were that kind of people, respected, admired, and loved. And so you can imagine how these guys felt about the tax collectors coming to listen to Jesus. Look what they say in verse 2. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're outraged. They're offended. Because Jesus isn't just welcoming these people. He's eating with them. I mean, well, think about it. Would you have a tax collector over for dinner? These people are mongrels. But the thing is, for all of their goodness, Jesus knows that the Pharisees have missed one massively crucial thing about God. They've missed his heart. And so Jesus talks about a lost sheep and he talks about a lost coin But where he really gets going is when he talks about a lost son. Have a look in verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. and He set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now let's be honest. This kid's a jerk. Isn't he? He's got the hide to ask for his inheritance before his dad is even dead. Now look, in their culture, in their law, you couldn't actually do that. You had to wait until your father died. But really, that's what this kid's saying. He's saying, well... What I'd really prefer, Dad, is that you were dead. But if I can have the money early, I don't mind if you keep living, but the money is what really counts. You're more used to me dead than alive, is what he's saying. He's a jerk. And then to compound the insult, when he gets it, he doesn't use it for anything good. He doesn't go and build a life. No, he squanders the lot. He blows the lot in wild parties and prostitutes. Now, how do you reckon our culture would deal with that, son? I thought about doing this this week, but I I didn't think I'd get away with it. Imagine if you posted on Facebook a modern version of this story. You know, the kid who steals all his parents' savings, their life savings, and he goes and blows it all at the casino. What What would the comment section in Facebook say? It'd go off, wouldn't it? What an ungrateful little mongrel. Write him off. You're better off without him. You got another kid. Pour your love into him. And then, probably, what would happen is today, tonight, and a current affair, they'd get hold of the story and they'd send the camera out to the kid and it'd be like, Tonight, dodgy son steals his parents' money. Shame, shame, shame. <laughs> you know what they'd say? They'd say he gets what he deserves. Because he does. Look in verse 14. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And it serves you right, you ungrateful little mongrel. You're getting what you deserve. Our our culture would call it karma, wouldn't it? What goes around, comes around. He treated his dad like dirt. and Now he's eating the same dirt. And the thing is, he knows it. At least he's self-aware enough to know that he deserves it. Because look what he does next. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have got food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out, and I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So he decides to go home. But he knows that he's forfeited the right to call it home. He he can't be a son anymore. And so what he pitches for is becoming a hired hand. And what you need to know is the word there for hired hand isn't the servant who works for you long term, who's part of your household. Now, this is the guy you hire to work for you for the day, who you give the cruddiest job on the farm to, and then you flick him at the end of the day. There's no commitment. He's just a hired guy, casual outsider. That's what this kid deserves, isn't it? In fact, he could count himself lucky if he got that kind of job with his father. You know, that's exactly what makes the father's response so extraordinary. Look in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and he kissed him and the son said father i've sinned against heaven and against you i'm no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to the servants quick bring the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his finger sandals on his feet bring the fattened calf and kill it let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again he was lost and he's found and so they began to celebrate So as soon as the father spots his son, and he's still a long way off, which tells you something about what the father's doing here, he runs to him. Now, you need to know, running is something that no father, no middle-aged man did in the ancient world. Because if you've ever tried to run in a dressing gown, you'll know the only way you can do it is to pull it up above your knees. And that's a pretty indistinguished thing for a man of middle age to do. No one wants to see a middle-aged man's knees. But he does. He pulls up his robes and he runs to his son and he throws around him and he gives him a big kiss on the cheek. And he says, and his son tries to get out this little speech. I love the fact that he only gets halfway through it. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father just cuts him off. He says, Quick, bring the best robe. And no, who owns the best robe? Father does. Bring my robe, bring the sandals. Bring the fattened calf because bring him back to being my son is what he's saying. Make him my son again. You see, instead of punishing him, he runs to him. Instead of sending him away, he embraces him. Instead of demanding him pay the money back, he kills the fatted calf for him. But you can really sum up the whole the whole attitude of the father in that little phrase in verse 20. Have a look at verse 20. The father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. That's what the father feels. Compassion. Which is the one thing that you almost never see in our culture. Compassion for the person who's done the wrong thing. Compassion for a son who was lost and who was dead and frankly pathetic and is now alive. That's what the Pharisees got so very wrong. They knew God was good and they were good. They just never understood that God's compassionate. But you know they should have. If they'd read their Bibles, they should have. Because all the way through the Bible, that's the God we meet. God's compassionate. You know that bit in Exodus? When God says to Moses, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, to you in your presence. There's the Lord, that's God's name. There's a Hebrew word behind it, but the Lord is God's name. What does God's name mean? Well, Exodus 34 verse 6, it means the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And look, if you know God's name, you'll know there's a second part as well they're going to dig into a lot next week. But look at what God's name means. It means the compassionate God, the gracious God, the God who's slow to anger, who's abounding in love and faithfulness, the God who forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's God's name because that's God's heart. That's his character. And doesn't that just describe that father to a T? Wouldn't you just say that Father maintains love for His Son? That He forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin to His Son? In fact, isn't that just how God treats His people all the way through the Bible? We read Psalm 106 earlier. Have you ever Did you listen to it? Have you ever read it before? I read it four or five times this week. And every time I read it, I'm completely blown away. Because what you see in Psalm 106 is Israel just sin and sin and sin so they they forget god's miracles in egypt and then they rebel against god by the red sea and then they complain in the wilderness and then they complain against moses and then they worship a golden calf and then they refuse to go into the promised land and then they worship the Baal of and then they make treaties with foreign nations and then they start worshiping their gods and then they start sacrificing their children to their gods and all along the way you think did israel ever manage to get anything right and the answer is no not much And yet time and time again, God forgives them. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He maintains his love for them. He forgives their wickedness. And so the psalmist begins it with praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. That's our God. His love endures forever. You know what it boils down to? God loves us because of him, not us. God loves us because he's loving, not because we're lovable. God loves us because he's compassionate. God loves us because he's the one who's slow to anger. Because he's abounding in love and faithfulness. God loves us because he maintains his love to the thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. God is the very opposite of our culture and the way our hearts relate to people. We love people because they deserve it. We love people when they're lovely. We love people when, you, when you're good to me. We love people when you love me. We, I'll love you if you keep your promises to me. I'll love you if you're faithful to me. I'll love you if you're nice to me. I'll love you if you make me feel good. I'll love you if you deserve my love. Then I'll love you. Problem is, none of us deserve love, do we? None of us can keep it up. Because frankly, the better you get to know me, the more you'll realize I'm not that lovable. Oh, sure, I'm like everyone else. I got my good days, but I'm a mixed bag. I can do some pretty rotten things, and I have. And so in this world, we just get used to relationships ending. We get used to the idea of doing something and a friend just won't forgive us and it's over. We get used to... Course colleagues, people classmates, where we say that one thing that we wish we could take back and we can't, and it's just never forgiven. We get used to spouses, husbands and wives, who hold on to past sins and then bring them out in the argument to cut us down. We get used to kids who resent their parents, and their parents are busy resenting their parents, who are glad their own parents have gone. And we get used to hiding our faults away. Pretending we're better people than we are. Because we know that if, I know that if you knew what I was really like, if, if you knew the thoughts I've think, that I think, if you knew the thoughts I would thought about you and the things I'd said about you, that would have been the end of the friendship. But God does not play by those rules. God does not love us because we deserve it. God does not love us because we love him first. And God doesn't hate us because we fail him. No, God loves us because of who he is. He is the father who never stops loving his children. He's the father who welcomes the worst son in the world home with open arms. He is the Father who's the compassionate and gracious God who's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, who maintains love to the millions and forgives their wickedness, rebellion and sin, who forgives Israel time and time and time again. God loves you because of him, not you. Have you realized that? Have you realized that's how God relates to you? Have you realized that God is different? To every other person you will ever meet in your entire life in this respect. Because see for some of us. Well the news just. It seems almost too good to be true. For those of us who relate to the younger son. See it's funny over the years I have noticed that. Most Christians do fall into one of two camps. We relate to one son in this story or the other. Me. Me. I relate to the younger son who's run away. I didn't grow up as a Christian. I was never the good, dutiful kid who did the right thing. I was the stuff up. I was the one who was always doing the naughty thing. I was the one whose parents would say, Greg, we're not angry. We're just disappointed. And I, even now, I always figure that just about every other Christian is more godly than I am. Just about every other Christian has got their life together more than I have. I feel like a fraud more than half the time. And loads of us do. Loads of us feel like we can never deserve God's love, either because of the things that we've done in the past or the things we're still doing, and probably both. And we've just been conditioned in this life to expect punishment for it. In fact, we spend our lives just waiting for the next stuff up. So I've been good for a day, been good for a week, maybe maybe even a month. But I'll tell you one thing I know, I'm going to stuff it up soon. It's just a matter of time before my true colors come out. And God's going to see me for who I really am all over again. And so when it comes to God, for some of us, that strategy that we employ is the younger son. We say, God, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But can I be like one of your hired servants? I'm no, I know I'm not as good as, as the other Christians. I know, I'm, I know you're never going to love me as much as them. I know you're never going to be able to be proud of me. But God, do you think you could tolerate me? Do you think you can let me slip in the side before I stuff it up again and, and then I'm out? Is that how you see God? I'll be honest, that's my default position. Because I expect God to love me as much as I deserve to be loved. I expect a God to love me because of me. And that's the problem, isn't it? The wonderful thing is God does not love me because of me. He loves me because of him. He loves you. Because he is the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. I'm not lovable. You are not lovable. But God is loving. And next week what we're going to see is just how Jesus' death is the ultimate The ultimate crushing proof of God's love. But if you walk my path, if you're one of the younger brothers, is this something you've realized? That God doesn't love you or hate you because of you. He loves you because of him. In the third week of this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how understanding this about God actually changes the way we deal with our sin. But just for the moment, what do you do when you've sinned? That sin you always struggle with. That sin that you fail in every time that you commit and you, you dread having to come back to God and, and confess it and start again. What do you do? It's always so hard to pray, isn't it? I always put off praying for as long as I can. I find a million other things to do because I just can't face God. I can't face the thought of him saying, Greg, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. That is not the God who is really in heaven, is it? No, the God who is really in heaven is my father who is watching me from afar, whose heart is full of compassion. And my sin hasn't destroyed his love for me because it never depended on that. So you like me. you waiting, you're hiding. You might not be a Christian yet because you've always thought that you've mucked it up with God already. You come along to church and you think no one else here is like me. No one else here has done the things that I've done. These guys have all lived these lovely little Christian sheltered lives. But I couldn't become a Christian because of what I've done come home to god he knows he was never surprised all you have to do is say father i've sinned against heaven and against you i'm sorry and he'll forgive you there's nothing he wants more and then keep saying it again and again and again every time you need to because there are some of us here who we're not the naughty child We're the good child. We're the Pharisees in the very best sense of the word. That is, we've always cared what God thinks and we've always done the right thing. And we grew up and we went through Sunday school and then we went through youth group and all of our other friends went off and did terrible things. But we stayed with God. We never ran away. Personally, I don't get you guys. (laughs) Or at least I didn't until I had a child like that. See, one, maybe two of our kids are the ultimate good kids. Some of you teach them in Sunday school. They're always obedient. They're always dutiful. They're never rebellious to your face. They are the older children in Jesus' story. Come and have a look in the passage in verse 25. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you've never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, how on earth do we end up here? Where the good son, the obedient one, the dutiful one, who's always done the right thing, ends up outside his father's, his own father's party, with his arms folded, refusing to go in. What's well, funny, he's a lot like his younger brother. Think of all the similarities between he and the younger brother. They're both sons. They both think they're slaves. The first son is a slave. This one thinks he's a slave. They both have their father give to them their inheritance. Did you notice that? The father separates the inheritance. He gives this, this son has already inherited everything. He already owns everything. They're both away from their father and their father has to come out to them to bring them back in. But do you notice the biggest similarity? The biggest similarity is that they both totally misunderstand their father's heart. In fact, this guy, more than his little brother does. Because look how he describes his relationship with his father in verse 29. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. That's how he sees himself. He's a slave. Even lower than where his younger brother was aiming to be, he's a slave. And he sees his father as an ungenerous tyrant. Verse 29, you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. A slave to a tyrannical, demanding father. No wonder he gets so offended when his brother gets forgiven. The little brother hasn't earned it. And Look, for some of us, that's our relationship with God, isn't it? He is the taskmaster. We do the tasks and we do them because deep in our heart we have this dread that if we don't then he won't love us anymore and so we spend our lives slaving away to earn his love and of course that breeds resentment doesn't it? how can it not because it's a life lived in fear how long can i keep this up How long do I have to keep up this slaving? How long do I have to keep up being the dutiful, good, obedient, law-abiding, good girl before I make one mistake and God just hates me for it? Of course we end up resenting God. We live in fear of his judgment. But look what the father says to him in verse 31. He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this, this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. You know the loveliest word in that? It's in verse 31, where he calls him a son. The word is little boy. He says, my little boy. And in just those words, you can see how wrong this older son has been. His father hasn't mistreated him. He's already given him his share of the inheritance. He's never been a slave. He is a beloved little boy. Everything his father owns already belongs to him. And that's what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. I used to think that Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees in this passage. And he is. He is saying to them, you are outside your father's party here. I tell you, it's the most gentle rebuke. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, you are like the older son. You're good, like your father is good. But you just don't understand how much he loves you. You don't understand his compassion. You're seeing your father as a tyrant and yourself as a slave. And you've got all of these rules that you're obeying because you're afraid he doesn't love you. You think that your father's demanding and harsh, but you don't see that he loves you. See, God loves you more than you have ever realized, and it's not because of your performance. It's not because you toddled off to Sunday school. It's not because you went faithfully to youth group. It's not because you stayed Christian when all of your friends went off and slept with their non-Christian boyfriends and girlfriends. It's not because you're reading your Bible. It's not because you're doing ministry. It's not because you're praying. It's not because of anything about you at all. He loves you because of Him. See, for some of us, is it time that we stopped slaving for God And started enjoying being his little boy or his little girl. Not that you now run off (laughs) and do exactly what the little brother did. But that you start to obey out of love and out of security instead of out of fear. Is it time to accept that you cannot be perfect? But that he loves you anyway. Because it never depended on you. He loves you because of him, not you. Shall we pray? Our great Father, you are the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to millions and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. We praise you that you have always loved us because of you, not us. Because it's your heart, it's your name, it's your character. And Father, we praise you that next week we're going to see how Jesus' death is the ultimate example of that. We pray for those of us who have always been the disappointment, who have always let people down and who have spent our Christian lives waiting to let you down too and who have never felt like we could earn your love. We pray that we will believe what Jesus says here, that you give it unearned because of who you are. And we pray for those of us who have always been good, who have never run away, We've always been dutiful and obedient and Christian. We've always been the kind of people that our parents could be proud of, our church could be proud of. And because of that, in our heart, we are terrified that we can't keep up the standard before you. Father, we pray that we would know that we are loved not because of any of the things we've done, but because you are the loving God. Father, we pray that we'll believe Jesus' words. And Father, we pray particularly for those among us who are teetering on the edge, not sure whether we can become Christians because we're still dealing with the guilt. Father, we pray that next week, especially as we dig into Jesus' death, help us to see this magnificent news of a price paid, a body given, a life perfectly lived, And a death which pays for sin.
0: Because you love us already. Amen.